The following sermon is by Stephen Tillis, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Steve. Amen. Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. I realized the other day, sometimes when I'm telling you where to find that in the Bible, I'll just say let the Bible fall to the middle and turn to the left or the right. You could pretty much do that with every book in the Bible. So, somewhere along the middle there, Ecclesiastes chapter number 4. While you're finding your place there in Ecclesiastes, I want to remind you that at the close of the service today, I know this is Memorial Day weekend, but uh, this is the last Sunday of the month, and uh, kind of as our habit has been here in the new year, uh, when the service is closed, um, I believe Ken Clark's going to pray to close our service for us, and we'll be dismissed. If there's anybody that's here today that would like uh, for somebody to pray for them, uh, we want to meet you down front. You're welcome to stay. We'd like for all of our people who, who won't need that, if you'll just make your way out into the foyer and enjoy fellowship and talk out there. But if you're here today, maybe, um, maybe your heart is hurting or you have a heavy burden that you're carrying for somebody else or a physical ailment, uh, I set the, uh, set the expectation up front. This is not a healing service. We have no power in ourselves, but we do know one who has all of the power in the world. And so a few of us, a few of our deacons and uh, Melanie and prayer uh, leaders uh, will be down front. And uh, so as folks start to make their way out back, if you just want to walk down, we'll pair you up with somebody. You can sit here in the front or find a room to pray in. We just want to pray with you. If you're visiting here today and you say, man, I, you know, I, I know I don't know you, but I need some prayer in my life. Please feel welcome to come down and see us. Uh, we just want to extend love and grace and pray with you. Ecclesiastes chapter number 4. It's only 16 verses in this chapter, so I think what we'll do today is I will have a word of prayer for us, and then I'll kind of um, give you a, a brief little outline of this passage. And we'll walk our way down through it and see what the Lord has to say. So would you join me for prayer? Our Father, we do come to you now, and we pray that you would open our eyes by way of the Spirit of God, that you would give us illumination, and understanding. Father, I, I pray for cognitive understanding in, in every human being that is here as we open Your Word and look at it. And so we pray that um, our skillful uh, wisdom would be put into this passage. But at the same time, Lord, I'm aware that uh, probably what most of us need is not, not so much just the cognitive understanding of the passage, but we need a resiliency and a desire and... Uh, a resolution in our soul to actually leave here today uh, thinking deeply on these issues and applying them to the way that we live both in our individual life with our family and our workplace and Lord even in the world that is around us and so I pray that you would give us that resolve to actually live out what it is that we see in your word today and we will thank you and praise you Lord, I, I pray that uh, as we bring our service to a close as well, that we would not just come from the Bible to find a moralistic teaching on how to be better people, that our hearts and minds would be driven deeper into the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would see in our failing and in our shortcoming, 
the greatness of Jesus and that we would find our lives united to Him by repentance and faith and that You would teach us to live life like Your dear Son did and does. For it is in the name of Christ we do pray these things. Amen. Okay, for those of you that are keeping notes with me today, let me just simply give you the breakdown of this passage in advance before we actually walk through it. So um, this is either Solomon or whoever this is that's writing. He, he simply is coming along the way and he's saying, you know, I'm looking into the every avenue of life on how to find happiness and how to find fulfillment. And um, he, he's looking outward now in this, in this chapter and he finds himself in verse 1 through 3. Uh, he will look to the justice system to see if it is possible to live in a world in which a justice system creates a conducive society whereby this is the best way to live. So verse 1 through 3, we'll look at the failure of the justice system. And then he'll take a look into the marketplace in verse 4 down through uh, probably verse number 6 or 7. He'll look into the marketplace and he'll say, what about work? And what about uh, living in my job and my career? Can I find fulfillment and happiness? And what lessons are to be learned there? And then you will find that he moves from the marketplace into the highways or into relationships in uh, probably verse um, 9 through uh, 12, you know. And then you'll see lastly, he'll say, well, can I find happiness or what lessons can be learned from the palace or from the top of the line, from the king's seat, so to speak, in verse 13 down through verse number 16. So let me uh, in a few moments just kind of take this text apart for us, if you would. Look at verse number 1 through 3, and I want to ask that you would read along silently, just kind of meditate and think deeply about what's noticing here, and notice the word oppression and the repetition. He says, then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun, and behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, there it is again, and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of the oppressor was power, but they had no one to comfort them. So I congratulated the dead who were already dead more than the living who are still living. But better off than both of them is one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activities that is done under the sun. I would just simply, first of all, have you to take note of the repetition in this few first three verses of the word oppression or an oppressor. You want to take notice that verse 1 and verse 3 end in what is done under the sun. So the author here is not taking into consideration that activity of heaven above, but he is taking under consideration consideration what is going on in the justice system in the life in which he sees before his eyes. And then I'd have you to note here that uh, have you ever said to somebody or had that thought or heard somebody said, well, it's better off that you'd never been born. That's probably where this comes from is the book of Ecclesiastes. I want to say, first of all, that when this, uh, when this man looks here, he writes back in chapter number one that life is a little bit boring, life is monotonous, uh, life is meaningless, but he hasn't really fleshed that out all that well. But when we get to chapter number four, the author now begins to look at real life and where the rubber meets the road and what's going on in the individual's life. And the first thing he notices is, is that life is not fair for everybody. That might have been a good place to say amen. 
And I want to say to us today that this is maybe a difficult three verses for us to work in because we are in the city of Raleigh and we are in a nice country and we have had people that have fought to keep our nation free and we live in a good society. But what I want you to understand is that there are men and women and boys and girls around the world that live in societies that don't have this kind of freedom and they live under a great kind of oppression. And we ought to be praying and seeking and looking and longing for what we can do and how we can live and the way that we can pray for people around the world who are under great oppression. You know, I find in my own life that I keep oppression and what is going on in the world at arm's distance until it meets home for me. Everybody likes to, everybody likes to distance themselves from the oppressor until the oppression is upon your life. But what I want to say to us is that believers should be the kind of people that look into a hurting and a dying world and we reach out and do what we can for those that are being oppressed. What are you doing? Are you speaking out against oppression in the world? Do you look to stand up for those who are being hurt and being mistreated? Maybe for this crowd today, I should just bring that home for a moment because I think thinking on a national and an international level might be just a bit much for us today. Although I feel like we ought to go home and pray and read the newspaper and pray and look at the destruction in the world and the hurt and the pain and reach out in our own prayers and our own life toward that. But I just want to say, do you stand up for people at your job? Even if it means that you might get fired? What about in your family? Do you railroad over top of the lesser people in your family or the folks that can't defend or the people that don't have a way to, to, to fight back? Do you just let that go? And I want to say to you, if you stand by and do nothing, I'm not going to say that you're as bad as an oppressor, but what are you doing? Are you the kind of person that really stands up for those? Hey, can I say something to you? Nobody likes a bully. And you ought to fight against bullies. You ought to stop that kind of oppression. I'm going to say to our folks, I look, I know it's Memorial Day. I know a lot of people on vacation. And I want to say that if you're in, if you're in school, listen, you ought to do it in the appropriate ways. You ought to seek out the authorities. You ought to speak to your teachers. But don't stand by and do nothing. If somebody is being bullied in your class, you ought to stand up for them. That's the right thing to do. This guy looks into the world and he says, look, the justice system and there's so much oppression and there's nobody to comfort them. Do you spend time in your life comforting people who are hurting and weak and wounded and can't stand up for themselves? Do you spend time pouring your life into people that can't give back to you? You know what Jesus said to do? When you have a dinner, don't just invite the rich people. Start with the people that can give you nothing in return and reach out and love them. Is that a fair application of that passage? I want you to understand, first of all, this morning, this guy looks into the realm of the justice system and says, listen, there's all kinds of oppression and pain and mistreatment and it's wrong and there's nobody there to comfort them. And look, we have to have a balanced view. I think we have to have a biblical view. But if you stand on the side of privilege 
and all you do is pick and, and say, well, they could do this or they could do that. I, you know, I, y'all know before, it's just family. I, y'all know before, I, I worked in a rescue mission for a long time. I can't tell you how many letters we got in the mail that would say, we will not support the work that you do there. All of those people could, uh, are there because of their own addictions and their own way, and they could lift themselves up out of that lifestyle. Why don't they just go out and get a job? And when we got those kind of letters, my, my, my brother and I, for a while, our hearts would grieve and then we just balled them up and throw them in the, threw them in the garbage because those kind of letters come from stupid people. And if you're one of those people that write those letters, I'm sorry. And I just want to say to you, yeah, there are a lot of people that have addictions and pains and that put themselves in places of life. But I want you to understand when you get to that point in life, it's not as easy as you think. And you can't just go get a job. And even the work that you can get won't get you out of where you are. And that record follows you. And your resume and your application always gets put to the bottom. I know who I'm talking to today. And I'm just telling you, there is a whole huge group of people that you don't think about days and weeks at a time. But I want you to know that they're real. And they live. And I'm losing my voice, but they are human beings created in God's image. And if nothing else, you owe them respect of life. Eugene Peterson in Working the Angles is mammoth in my understanding of how to counsel and love people. And he said, uh, he said every time somebody would sit in his office, no matter how racked and ruined and devastated their life was, no matter what they had done and how many pills they had taken and how many things they had done wrong, he would have running and flooding over his mind as he spoke to that human being that they were created in God's image and they were worthy of respect for the sheer fact that they're a human being. You owe that. Treat people with respect. Stand up for the oppressed. I know that might not be the point that you want today. I know we might all want some sort of raw, raw point. But I want you to know in your individual life, you should stand up for oppressed people, neglected people, marginalized people. You ought to do the very best you can to be kind and gracious and loving and comforting. And I speak to my older generation, me included. Not older yet, but I'm getting there. I feel older. They say it's not the age, it's the mileage. And in that case, probably 120 by now. I, I, hey, listen, all of our teenagers, I just put your, don't put your hands over your ears, but proverbially, listen to me. All of the young people in this room, they are watching you. They're watching how you treat people coming to this church. Hey, listen, I'm just kind of peeling the scab open and pouring salt in your wounds, okay? They're watching how you respond to the news channel when it's on in your living room. They listen to what you say. They listen to the jokes that you tell that are off color when nobody's around. They listen to the way that you demean people when nobody else is around. Don't come back on top of that and then tell them to live for Jesus. You live for Jesus now. You bless those that curse you. You pray for your enemy. You turn the cheek and let somebody else slap you. You love those that are the least of these. 
And your children will grow up and they'll say, I saw the real deal in my mom and dad. I know there's a lot of gaps in there and I know there's a lot to fill in and I'm not trying to get into any of your political views. I'm just trying to tell you, love like Jesus and love those that have been oppressed. Well, the author here in verse 4, let me read down here a little bit. He goes to the marketplace. I think there's some interesting lessons here. I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This too is vanity and striving after wind or chasing after smoke. The fool folds his hands and consumes his flesh. One hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor striving after wind. Then I looked again in vanity under the sun. There was a certain man, I'll read verse 8 and then I'll talk to you about him. There was a certain man without a, uh, without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother, yet there was no end to all of his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with the riches that he never asked. And for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This too is vanity and it is a grievous task. There are a few individuals that are named in verse 4 through 8. I can't remember that I've ever done this, but could somebody see if they could find me a glass of water? I can barely breathe up here. Does somebody, thank you. Okay, sorry about that. Um, in verse 4 through verse 8, there are a few people that you need to know. The first there would probably be the industrious person. You see that? Look there. He's toiling and fighting. He's giving everything that he's got in verse number four. I have seen that, uh, he says, I've seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. Now, look, not necessarily everything you do and not necessarily every ambition is against somebody, but I would say that by and large, we have this unhealthy ambition inside of us that we were challenged by our neighbors, that we always want to do a little bit better than the Smiths. We always want to be doing a little bit better than the Jones. If they get a new car, we want a new SUV. If they get a new house, we want a five-bedroom house. If they get this uh, PlayStation, we want an Xbox One. Whatever it is, there always seems to be a bit of rivalry. And so even in the workplace, you ever notice that? It's a one-upsmanship. It's a, have you ever been involved in a business where maybe you had an idea? but you accidentally gave it to your superior. And when the board meeting came across, your superior or your boss acted like it was their idea and they stole that from you. Where do you think that comes from? That comes from this rivalry and this idea of chasing after industry and skill and labor, but only against people. I want to say to all of us, let's be careful. Let's be careful that we're like that. But look at the next guy. The next guy here, he is filled with laziness. Thanks. Are you envious? <laughs> look down at verse number look down at verse number five. Thank you. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. Now that doesn't mean that he's a cannibal. It just means that whatever he has, he uses it up because he's too lazy to go out and get some work. And so I, I want to say that if this text in verse number four condemns or says, look, be careful about being so ambitious that you're constantly living life to get ahead of your neighbor. You're constantly living life to get ahead of the next person. The next verse says, be cautious on the other side that you don't become that fool that is full of laziness that you won't work. The New Testament says, 
says, if a person doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. And I want to say to all of us that if you have the ability and breath in your lungs, and stamina in your body and reason in your mind, you ought to be the kind of person that works for a living. Say amen. The world is filled with lazy people. Don't be that way. Don't be that way. And I just want to say too, not only, not only to our young adults and not only to everybody in our middle age, I want to say to people that are retired too, the Bible says nothing about retirement. And you may retire from your job, that's fine and dandy, but you never retire from Jesus. You never retire from the work of God. And if you find satisfaction in just putting water on the lilies and watching the sun come up in the morning and you're going to sail away into your later years and never do anything for Jesus, you're wasting life if you're 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 or 90 I had to say that in here man, we got long life in here if you have breath in your being don't fold your hands and sit back and be lazy get out there and serve for Jesus give every year give everything that you have to the service of the Lord Jesus Christ not only is this uber ambitious industrious person condemned but he goes over here and says to the fool be careful that you don't spend your life in laziness but then look at what it says here too look here if you would at verse number uh, at verse number six I think this is a helpful one one hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor and chasing after wind. Let's pause for a quick moment and just say, there are some people that are so busy chasing after everything that you never stop and rest and allow Christ to fill you. If you're too busy to spend time in God's Word, you're too busy. If you're too busy to come to church, you're too busy. If you're too busy to love your spouse or to love your friends or to invest in those that are around you, you're too busy. And whatever it is that you're chasing has become an idol. And if you get two fists full of dollars and all of that you're chasing and you lose out on Christ and eternity and family, you've lost the game. You ought to learn to live the balanced life. That's what he's saying in this text. He says, look, I looked into the justice system and I found that there was a lot of oppression. I look in the marketplace and I see super ambitious people that have nothing. I see super lazy people that have nothing. And I see a few people that are balanced in there somewhere with work and rest the same way. And then he turns his attention to the highway and maybe I'll just park here for a couple of minutes. You ought to have some relationships in your life. Relationships are meaningful. Friendships are important and powerful. Look if you would here at verse number, uh, verse number nine. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. You see, two is better than one when it comes to working. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? 
And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. I don't want to uh, frustrate anybody that had this passage read at their wedding. But I don't think that passage is necessarily directly speaking about marriage. I think, in fact, it could be talking about two brothers or two sisters that are working together and uh, living together and uh, helping each other and having relationship. And so this is not just speaking about marital relationships. I, I want all of us to understand. In fact, sometimes some of my married folk, you, know, we, you have the idea that if you're, if you're not married, then somehow, you know, you're just missing out on life. And you know, that people that aren't married, they don't live a full life. And uh, people that don't have children, they don't live a full life. I do want you to remember that the Lord Jesus Christ never married and never had biological children. And he mostly likely, I'm pretty sure the Bible would teach, he lived the most complete life you could possibly live. Amen? Yeah, whether you like it or not, that's right. Yeah. What I think is going on in this passage, though, is that he is saying, whether it is a marital bonds, or whether it is with children, or whether it is with friendships, that God never intended for us to be a Lone Ranger religion. That God wants all of us to be in healthy, God-honoring relationships that challenge each other, that love each other, that sharpen each other. And you ought to have those relationships built into your life. And if you're the kind of person that doesn't have those relationships, I want to encourage you on the authority of Scripture today. Uh, listen, I'm tired of reading things on Facebook about introverted people. If you're so introverted, you wouldn't post it. <laughs> If you're introverted, I don't, I do understand. Okay? That is real. Introversion is not an excuse for not reaching out. Now, this is a moment of teaching here for our body, okay? I've had people say to me something, they just don't, nobody calls me. I just, I haven't gotten a call from my Sunday school class. Do you know what I say when people say that to me? First thing I always ask is, how many people have you called in your Sunday school class? Well, I just haven't heard from that pastoral staff. I don't know where they are, what they're doing. When was the last time you called me? <laughs> I'm going to lose my job tomorrow, Jamie. <laughs> hey, look. Yeah, and I just, I'm just messing. Many of you call me, and please don't call me this afternoon. I will be sleeping. <laughs> I love you. you. You understand what I'm saying? Look, you got to invest in each other's life. You, you need each other. You need people in your life. I remember years ago, I was, when I was in high school, I had some, I was a science class or what it was, but you remember when you had to work in teams? Right? You're like dissecting the fetal pig or you had like a science project or whatever. I was that kid that was like, oh, I don't want to work with anybody. Please, I can do better than all those groups just by myself. Leave me alone. Give me some construction paper and a board and I'll get this thing done. It's wrong. You ought to learn to work with other people. Now, some people, you know why? Because sometimes you'll work with people on the team and they're lazy. They ain't no good, dumber than a box of rocks. 
It's good for you to work in that group. It's good for you to learn how to be around other people. It's good for you. Hey, listen to me. I'll tell you work. It's good for you to understand that you're not the biggest fish in every pond too. Group work and group love and church membership has a way of cutting the legs out from prideful people and prideful behavior. Okay? Don't go at it alone. Two is better than one. And then what's, how's it end up? It goes from one to two, and a threefold cord is stronger than all of that. Amen? Well, the last place, look here at verse 13 to 16. Really cool little ironic story. You should read and meditate on this sometime. Let's see where I am. Go, I should finish with this. Watch, watch what happens here. And, and basically, I'll give you the thrust of the story. That is that uh, power is not everything that it should be, and popularity is fleeting. You remember that. Power is not everything it's cracked up to be, and popularity is fleeting. Look at this little story, how it turns on its head. A poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction. For he has come out of prison, that is the young guy, right? For he has come out of prison to become king, even though he was born poor in his kingdom. I have seen all the living under the sun throng to the side of the second lad who replaces him. There is no end to all the people, to all who were before them. And even the ones who will come later, they'll not be happy with him. For this too is vanity and striving after wind. Now, the language there is such that you probably need to read that four or five or seven hundred times before you get it. But the point of the passage is, you got this wise old king who won't take instruction anymore. And so his power becomes his folly and he falls from his place from being a rich king to being a poverty-stricken dumb man. That's what it says. And you have this young guy who is poor, but he's wise and he's in prison and he gets out and he is lifted up by the people and ascends in this meteoric rise into power. But what does it say by the end of the passage that even the people that come after, after a while they're tired of that dude's popularity too and they are fickle and move on to somebody else. Power is not all that it's cracked up to be. Be careful about pursuing power at the neglect of your soul. I'm not talking about on a world stage. I'm talking about in the stage of your home, in the stage with your friends, in the stage of this church. Here's a discipline for you that you'll hate that I told you, and I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit will bring it back to your mind every day. You should practice the discipline of not always having to have the last word. Now, you think that sounds good until the next time you're in a conversation with somebody. When you're the kind of person that always has to have the last word, do you know what, that, do you know what that's evidence of? A hunger and an unhealthy thirst for power in your life. Because most often in conversations, the person that has the last word is the person who feels most respected, who feels like they get their way, who feels like they have the top of the conversation. And so you ought to will in your heart to submit to the Lord and to other people and not always have to have the last say. And you will find in the arguments and fusses and fights that you have in life, in relationships, 
you'll find that that will help you to diffuse the tension out of arguments and to find a quicker reconciliation around Jesus. Because when you don't have to have the last say, what you're saying is that your confidence is in the Lord Jesus, that you love the person that's in front of you. And even if you disagree with their last word, it's not the end of the world. Now just let that sit in. And work on that a little bit. We all have a power-hungry desire to have the last word. And be careful about popularity. It's fickle. Right? Popularity is fickle. You don't believe that? Just watch styles in clothing. Bell-bottoms go out, bell-bottoms come back. Rompers go out, rompers come back. I'm just messing with you. I'm just messing with you. We ordered this week for all the staff a matching set of rompers. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Brothers and sisters, be careful about popularity. And now look, hey, I'll just close this. Hey, all of my older people in here, they're saying, you get those young people. That's right. That popularity is fickle. It's fleeting. You know who I find struggles the most with popularity? Everybody but the young folks. And you want to be on that committee? You want those people to think you're cool? You want those people to be on your side? So much so that you'll pick on and talk bad about and gossip about other people in other areas of the church just so you stay in that cool group. Where the fact of the matter is, if you'd ever just confront that person that was gossiping to you and just say, you know what, I love you in the Lord, but you're a really mean person. You ought to stop that. You're hurting God's people. You'd not be popular anymore. God didn't call you to be popular. God called you to be godly. Yeah? I just want to finish this morning by telling you, when you read a passage like that, are you not extremely aware in your mind of your fallen condition? I have a fallen condition that I'm prone to oppress rather than comfort people. I have a fallen condition that I'm prone to be uber ambitious or lazy rather than to be balanced. I have this compulsion in me for power and popularity. And I say that as a friend up here pointing at me, hoping that everybody in this congregation will look in your own heart and say, yeah, that's me too. And if you don't think that that's the way you are, you have even bigger problems we've not even spoken about. Of course you're that way. Who comes along to help us? Jesus. Jesus is the one who doesn't break the reed nor put out the smoldering flax, as Isaiah says. Jesus is the one who goes and dies on the cross to bring comfort to the brokenhearted. Jesus is the incredibly balanced one who both works and says that I send forth laborers into the harvest, but He says, come unto Me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Jesus is the one who destroys the powers of the world by humbling himself to the death, even the death of the cross. And Jesus is the one who he would go to the cross and against all popularity, when the whole world would turn its back on Jesus, he would still die and stand up so that you and I could come to him and have life eternal. Amen. Let us think about these things today. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Hey, brothers and sisters, just on this, on this Sunday right here, would you just maybe pray in your own heart, think through those categories for a minute, ask yourself, hey, am I really standing up for what's right no matter what? And where's my work life? Am I really doing well in my relationships? Am I seeking too much after power and popularity? And then I urge you to flee to the cross. Go to the cross. Go to Jesus. Say, Lord Jesus, here's my heart. Here's where I failed. Make me right. Make me new. If you're in here today, member or visitor, and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and what I've said today strikes a chord in your heart, don't try and fix it yourself. Don't try and just become a better person. Run to Jesus and say, save me, change me, transform my life so that I am like you. And He will. Just stand with us and sing this song. You've been listening to Stephen Tillis, pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh. For more information and free access to other messages, please visit us at ebcraleigh.com.